the radio personality, would begin each of his broadcasts with, you know what the news is. In a minute, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. Philip Brooks wrote Old Little Town of Bethlehem. But what I want to tell you is the rest of the story, which is basically the story behind the story. What led up to that? Uh, And I think one of the best places to go to get the story before the story is Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This, by the way, is a prophecy. It was written 700 years before Christ was even born. Micah 5, just verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, or Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Bethlehem, O little town of Bethlehem. The prophet tells us the story behind the news of Christ's birth. The Christ's birth we just read in Luke chapter 2, it was prophesied way back here 700 years before in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is the story behind the story. This is what's leading up to it. Now, uh, I'm, I'm going to take two Sundays to talk about this. I, if I did it all this Sunday, it would, it would be really long. But we want to look at the, the place is Bethlehem. The plan is redemption, and the person is Jesus Christ. Today, all I'm going to look at is the place is Bethlehem. As I was looking over my notes, even as I was thinking before I even came up, there's some things I'm probably telling you more than you need to know, but there's so many interesting things behind the scenes that led up to the real story of his actual birth itself. The place is Bethlehem. Notice that it is a specific location. There is actually, and some of you have known this, there's two Bethlehems. There's a Bethlehem that is near Nazareth, which is about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. And there's Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is five miles south of Jerusalem. Bethlehem means house of bread. In John chapter 6, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am... Now, um, there's about 23 times in the book of John he uses the I am phrase. The I am is associated with when Jesus appeared to Moses at the burning bush back here in Exodus. When he appeared to him at the burning bush, he said, I am... When, when Moses said, who should I say has sent me? The, God spoke to him from the burning bush said, I am that I am. When Jesus then came and said to the people in Israel in the Gospels, he said, I am. He, they knew that he was associating himself. He was claiming deity, divinity. He was claiming to be God. So when he said, I am, he was associating back with the I am that I am back in Exodus with Moses. Now, uh, there are seven, there's 23 times he uses the I am, but there's seven times 
that he uses a descriptive phrase to help understand. For instance, in this verse, verse chapter 6, verse 35, I am, this is the first I am, I am the bread of life. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He has said that I am the bread of life. You eat of this bread, you will never hunger again. And he uses that analogy again to to proclaim a message to them of salvation is eternal. You're eternally secure. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, at that point in time, your salvation was settled. It was a done deal. And he said, if you have tasted of the bread of life, you have eternal life. For I am the bread of life. Bethlehem was called the house of bread. Jesus had just fed 5,000 with two fishes, five loaves. The following day, a multitude had crossed to Capernaum, across, around the sea. They were seeking Jesus. And he, they were discussing of heaven, provided by Moses, the father in the wilderness of the bread. And that's when he says, John 6.35, I am the bread of life. So Bethlehem is a place, a house of bread. But notice it's Ephrathah. This specifically designates this as the city that is south of Jerusalem, about five miles. It means fruitful. Using the analogy of the vine and branches, there in John chapter 15, Jesus is teaching about living the Christian life. The last, by the way, of the statements of Christ's claims to deity. Remember, I am associates with the, the burning bush that Moses said, Who shall I say has sent me? I am that I am. When Jesus said I am, he was the attention to himself as divine, as deity. To see Jesus Christ was to see God himself. He said, I am the vine. The first one, I am the bread. The last one, I am the vine. Which calls attention to Christian living. So you have salvation in Christian living. So Bethlehem... This is, this is a specific location. Do you, hear, do you get the significance of that? 700 years before Jesus was born, Micah in prophecy under the you know, guidance of the Holy Spirit wrote that Jesus was going to be born specifically in Bethlehem. Ephrathah, five miles south of Jerusalem. And guess what? That's exactly where he was born. That's the significance of this. That just as we can look at this and say prophecy was true here, we can look to the future prophecies that are given out and say, you know what? Prophecy is still going to be true. He is faithful to his word. This is, I don't know if you can see this uh, to kind of visualize this. If you see Jerusalem there in your map, just south of that is Bethlehem. Now, if you're looking for the other Bethlehem, that's off the, off the top of the map. It's about 75... In fact, if you know where Nazareth is, that's, that's about seven miles from the northern Bethlehem. That Bethlehem was part of Zebulun's um, portion of land given to him by Joshua. This Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem, of course, is in Judea. Because, of course, Christ is a descendant of the house of David, which was a tribe of Judah. So this is, the, this is that Bethlehem. 
All right, like I said, I probably told you more than you needed to know, but it's just, it's amazing to me. When you think about it, the significance of the fact, he mentioned a, a specific place, and guess what? That's exactly where he was born. Significant history. This is, uh, as, as we look at this, there's, there's four historical events there's more, more than that that happened here at Bethlehem, but there's four ex- historical events that really stand out, grab our attention as we look uh, at the, the uh, story of Bethlehem. First of all, Rachel's buried there. In Genesis chapter 35, verse 16 to 19, then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrathah, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor, Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Onai. But his father called his name Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrathah, that is, Bethlehem. Rachel died here. It's a place of, of, of sorrow. It's a place of grief. Jacob had, this is a case study in dysfunction. You think you have a dysfunctional family? You need to read about Jacob. Jacob, Jacob had two wives and two concubines, but his two wives were Leah and Rachel. They were sisters. He loved Rachel. That was his favorite. And within the home itself, there was always this vine of attention between Leah and Rachel for uh, Jacob's attention. And uh, Jacob, of course, as you know, fathered 12 sons, one daughter. Rachel, through God's divine intervention, uh, allowed her to become pregnant, and she already had one son by the name of Joseph, who just happened to be Jacob's favorite son. Uh, you've heard of Joseph's many, coat of many colors. This is that same Joseph. And, uh, but Rachel was unable to have any more children until later she became pregnant again, with Benjamin. And there, Jacob is on his way back uh, to Israel. Uh, he's left his brother-in-law's care. He's back on the way back, and Rachel goes into labor at Bethlehem. And she dies in childbirth. And she utters his name, Benoni, which means son of sorrow. Now, can you imagine going through life and uh, being introduced as, oh yeah, here's my son of sorrow. Uh, you have that moniker on your name all, all the time you live. As, uh, I would be a downer. Oh, here's my son of sorrow. Uh, thanks, Dad. I appreciate you naming me that. Okay. But Jacob uh, renamed him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Just some, some side thoughts about that. Uh, son of my right hand. Right hand is a place of power, uh, position. Benjamin, by the way, was the smallest of the 12 tribes. But in Jacob's, at Jacob's death, he gave a prophecy concerning each one of his sons. Uh, he said, Benjamin will be like a ravenous wolf. Uh, in other words, he, will be, he was a very fierce uh, tribe. It was out of Benjamin that they had the 500 left-handed fighters who could throw a... a um, a sling, throw a stone from a sling within a hair's breadth of the target. This was, this was the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Saul, 
King Saul, came from the tribe of Benjamin. Of course, he was later rejected as king. Uh, the apostle Paul came from the tribe of Benjamin. So this is, this is some of the things when you think about Benjamin, like I said, the more you need to know, but there's some interesting things that unfold as, as you look back in the history itself that takes place. So at Bethlehem, this is a place, this is a place where Rachel was, uh, she died uh, and buried here, uh, but she died in childbirth. All right, what do we learn from that? Isaiah 53.3. Again, prophecy. Isaiah, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing what God told him to write. In Isaiah 53.3, he is despised and rejected. He's speaking of the Messiah. He's speaking of the Christ. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and he did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our Savior was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Rachel was buried there. Our Savior, Isaiah 53, again, prophecy. And this is what was true of Christ. He bore our sins willingly. He's acquainted with grief and sorrow so that you wouldn't have to be acquainted with grief and sorrow. Secondly, not only is Rachel buried there, but Ruth is redeemed there. This is a beautiful story, of course. Uh, if you uh, kind of a, if you you're a little bit of a um, uh, Old Testament history buff, Joshua they came and conquered the land, and Joshua divided divided the land in, among the twelve tribes, as God directed him. And Joshua, at the end of the book of Joshua, he, he challenged the people. He said, now listen, uh, don't get fat uh, on your portion that God has given you and forget how you got here. In other words, don't go spiritually backwards. Well, we go from Joshua then to the book of Judges. And of course, the theme of the book of Judges is, every man did that which was right in their own eyes. They did exactly what Joshua told them not to do. They got fat spiritually on themselves and on what their portion was. And they did that which was right in their own eyes. Well, if you, if you read through Judges, it's, it's, it's uh, amazing to see the Judges and how he, they ruled and God intervened time after time after time, but yet the people kept going back. They kept going back. And if you read through it, it's actually a little bit of a discouraging book. Judges itself makes you think of judgment. Okay? But... God always has a remnant. When I think of our country, and in some respects, we are living in the days of the judges. So many people are doing that which is right in their own eyes. But just like in the day of judges, there were people like Ruth and the book of Ruth. 
God always has a remnant, even in the days, whether it's the trying days we live here or whether it's Christians who live in Afghanistan or China. God always has a remnant set aside. And so Ruth is this incredibly beautiful love story of people who are trying to live obedient to God's word within this ungodly environment. You, you, ha- you don't know what kind of influence you can have even in your present environment. And so we have Ruth uh, here uh, in uh, the days of the judges. So, Ruth. Uh, let's, let's talk about Ruth. Ruth is exciting. Um, Naomi and Elkina, or Elkanah were married, and they were from Bethlehem. They, because of a famine, they moved down to Moab. And when they got to Moab, they stayed there. Uh, the estimate is someplace between 10 to 12 years. Well, their two sons, who were getting older, they married while they were there in Moab. Naomi, the mother, her husband died, and her two sons died. Naomi heard the report that finally the famine had ended back in Judea. Her husband and sons had died. She felt no tie to stay there in Moab, so she was going to make her journey back to Bethlehem. And so she told her daughters-in-law, you know, you, you might as well stay here. You're familiar with their family and such. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. And Ruth said, I, I, I want to go where you go. Basically, Ruth had converted or become a proselyte of Judaism. And she, and she had turned her back on her idols, her, the way she grew up, the idolatry that she had been involved in, uh, the, the uh, lifestyle and such. And she said, no, where you go, I will go. Your God is my God. And your home, basically, is going to be my home. And uh, she said, well, I have no more, Naomi said, I have no more sons. They're not going to be able to raise up heirs. There was a, there was a, um, it's called the Leverite Law. And it's part of the, the uh, law written there in Deuteronomy. That if you had a son and he died, then the next son would take to wife, his wife, to raise up sons in his name because it had to do with some of the inheritance and it had to do with land. It's called the, the, the Leverite Law. And that's why Naomi said, I have no more sons. In other words, you're, you're, you're on your own. If you go back with me basically to Bethlehem, I'm a widow, you're a widow, we don't have much to look forward to. Ruth said, this is the beautiful part of the love story. Ruth said, no, your God is my God. Where you go, I'll go. And uh, your home is going to be my home. So Ruth and Naomi head back. And when they get back to Bethlehem, people see Naomi and say, is this Naomi? And, of course, she says no because she, was, she said, uh, no, I, I'm bitter. I'm not, I'm not Naomi anymore. I'm bitter. And uh, she then... Had, a, had somehow find some place to live. We're not told about where that happened. But basically, they became beggars. 
They had to live off of what was left in the field. Ruth then would go and reap in a field because sheaves had been left there so they could get the grain. When she went back to Naomi, and Naomi said, where is it is that you are gleaning? Uh, this is what happened. They would harvest their fields, and they were supposed to leave at the end of the fields, or different place in the field, a certain cuttings, so that poor people had something to gather. This was, this was part of what they were supposed to do. They were always supposed to leave something for people to gather. Well, this is what Ruth did, along with other women that didn't have any means. They went and gathered this. This is how they gathered their, their grain. And uh, Naomi said, Ruth, where's the field that you're gathering? He said, well, I'm gathering a, in a field by the name, a man by the name of Boaz. And Naomi said, he is a close relative. And you say, well, what does that mean? Only a close relative could help in a situation of that that they were in. Let me, let me expand on that a little bit. The responsibility of a close relative to avenge the death of a murdered relative, marry the widow of a deceased relative, that's the Leverite vow or Leverite law, buy back land that had been sold, this was very important. That's why you have these detailed genealogies. Some of it had to do with the land and who possessed the land. When those genealogies were eventually destroyed, that's why there was such a turmoil of, well, who gets what? But that's why the importance of the genealogy. So buying back land that had been sold, buying back a family member who had been sold as a slave, and then care for needy and helpless members of a family, in this case, it just happened that Ruth had gone in the field of Boaz. So that was the responsibility of a close relative. The requirements in order for you to be considered a close relative, you had to be a kinsman. There had to be some type of blood relationship. There had to be something in the genealogy uh, where I could say, uh, like Danny Logman, I'm related to Danny Logman. There, had to be, there has got to be some tie for me to be able to be related to Danny Logman. I'm not related to Danny Lagerman, okay? We are not kinsmen. Now, the only way that we are kinsmen is we are kinsmen in Christ. You know, that's the only bond that Danny Lagerman and I have. But it, as far as our lineage or family ties, there's none. But before, because of Christ, we can say, well, we're kinsmen. So, he had to be a kinsman. The requirement, he had to be free himself. In other words, he could not be a slave or cannot be sold into slave. He had to be free himself. He had to be able to pay the ransom. And if there, if there was a ransom to be paid, whether it had to be to get the land out of hock or buy the relative out of slavery, they had to be able to pay the ransom. The fourth requirement is this. They had to be willing to pay the ransom. They had to be willing to redeem. And uh, so, Boaz is Naomi's kinsman. And because he is Naomi's kinsman, he is Ruth's kinsman. Oh, hey, this is great. You know who Boaz's mother was? Rahab. Remember Rahab? Do you remember your stories about in the Old Testament stories? At Jericho? Rahab, she was a prostitute. 
God marvelously took that woman, changed her life. And here she is in the actual line of Christ. Isn't that something? There's always hope, isn't there? So anyway, so Boaz then is a kinsman. And he's identified by Naomi as a kinsman. And so the love story is it unfolds. Basically, uh, Boaz recognizes that Ruth is a virtuous woman. She is, if you read, read Proverbs 31, that's Ruth. That's everything that Ruth is in Proverbs 31. That she's the Proverbs 31 woman. That's Ruth. That's who she is. And uh, in order for him to redeem Naomi and Ruth, redeem the land, to get the land back in the name of the kinsman, uh, he had to be willing to do this. And he was. But there was a closer relative. There, in, in this case, there was Boaz, but there was one that was closer in relationship to Naomi, therefore even Ruth. And so he had to go before the, the elders of the city. And uh, he told them the situation, I'm, I'm here to, to redeem the, the land here and, uh, as, as the kinsman of Naomi. But there's a closer relative who has a, a, a prior right to do so. And um, so he presented the case to the prior relative, the closer relative, and he said, uh, I'm willing to do it. So Boaz is out. But then, if he was to father a son by Ruth, that son would also divide all of his inheritance. Instead of being divided between his sons, let's say four ways, now everything's divided five ways. And if he had another son, it would have been six ways. Okay, so he, in thinking through this, it would have affected his own inheritance, so he said, I'm not willing. So, this is cool. So the Bible says, he takes off his sandal, and he hands it in front of the elders, and, and, and Boaz says, now this is witness. This is a witness. He's taking off his sandal. He is giving up his right. And Boaz says, I am taking that right, because I will become her kinsman redeemer. He paid the debt, and of course, Ruth, or Boaz, see if I can get my shoe back on. Boaz married Ruth then, and of course, she becomes the wife of Boaz and the uh, mother of Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse becomes the father of David. So now we have the house of David at Bethlehem. So Christ is our kinsman redeemer. See the picture? See the analogy? Christ is our kinsman redeemer. He became a kinsman in John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became our kinsman. He was free from the bondage of sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. He was a free man. He who was in all points tempted as we are, yet he was free from sin. He was able to pay the ransom. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Not redeemed with corruptible things, but with precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, without spot. He, was, he wanted to. He was, he was 
He, I mean, see, he was our kinsman. He was free to, he was able to, and he wanted to. He was willing to. John chapter 10, verse 15, and verse 18 specifically. No one takes it from me, he says, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. In other words, you, you could not, you know, they crucified Christ, but he let himself be crucified. He was willing to be crucified. He wanted to become our kinsman redeemer. Jesus Christ, born at Bethlehem, is our kinsman redeemer. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Wow. The bottom line. What's the bottom line? Jesus died for you. He redeemed you that you could have life. That you could be free from the penalty and from the power of sin. He's our kinsman redeemer. (laughs) That's good stuff. Rachel was buried there. Ruth was redeemed there. But also David is anointed king there. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I am sending you to Jesse, Jesse, Ruth, and Boaz had a son named Obed. Obed had a son named Jesse, and Jesse had a son named David. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to, the Je- to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And because of his disobedience, he had been rejected as king. And Samuel, the prophet, who had anointed Saul, now was being sent by God to anoint a son of Jesse. And this is where he goes, when he gets to Bethlehem, oh, this is, he's walking, I always have this picture. Here's Samuel. Samuel was an incredible prophet. He was not only highly respected, but he was also a priest. And I always have this picture of, here's Samuel come walking towards the, towards the cities. He's walking down the hill, and they're looking up, and they're seeing Samuel coming, and they're, and they're all looking at each other going like, uh-oh, what did we do now? Because this, this is Samuel. I mean, this, this is, traumatic things happen when Samuel's around. So he, he basically walks in and says, put your fears aside. Everything's okie-dokie. And now that's, that's Minnesotan. That's how you talk in Minnesota. Okie-dokie. And so he was from northern Israel. So he said, everything's fine. I'm just here, God has sent me here to anoint one of your sons as king. And I could hear Jesse going like, okay, which one? I don't know. God's going to show me when he gets here. Uh, and so the sons pass in front of Samuel, and Samuel's looking at these, these guys, and going, that's got to be the one. Man, he's a man's man. He's awesome. That, that's got to be the one. And God said, no, that's not the one. So the next son comes and he says, now God... If that wasn't the one, this has got to be the one. Man, he is incredible. That, that's, if he was a man-man, he's the man's man's man. He's the guy. And God said, no, that's not the one. Seven sons. 
pass in front of David or in front of Jesse. To the point where finally Jesse, or I mean Samuel. So finally Samuel says to Jesse, do you have any more sons? I mean, these have all been rejected. He said, well, I have one. He's out, he's out watching the sheep. He said, well, bring him in. Of course, this was his youngest son. Uh, by the way, that phrase, God looks, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, that comes out of this story. Because see, Samuel was looking at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You and I can look good. We can dress right. We can talk right. We can do all the right things. But you know what God looks at? He looks at the heart. He examines our heart. That's why when we come to communion, we examine ourselves. Why? Because we need to look at ourselves the way God looks at ourselves. Our, our exception clause, of course, is we always look at somebody else and say, well, they're much worse than I am. No, we're to examine ourselves. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so Jesse said, I have one more son. He watches the sheep. His name's David. He brings David, and of course, David's the one. So Bethlehem, of course, is where David was anointed king. This is called the city of David, is Bethlehem. The youngest son of Jesse, grandson of Ruth and Boaz, born of Bethlehem, anointed by Samuel, because Joseph then was descended from the house of David, of course, when the census was taken, guess where he had to return to? Bethlehem. You think this is coincidence? You think this is an accident? It's exactly as God said it would be. What was happening was exactly what God told him would happen. At the city, in the city of David, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, is where the king would be born. So we have David, anointed king there, <coughs> in Bethlehem. Christ is the only king who can bring salvation to our souls and rule in the hearts of mankind. Listen, there's only one Messiah. There's only one God. There's not many gods. Allah is not God. God is God. Allah is not Christ. Muhammad is not Christ. Christ is Christ. As he said in his own words, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I say that as kindly as I can to you, there's only one way to heaven. It's through Christ. Christ is the only king who can bring salvation to our souls and rule in the hearts of mankind. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Jesus Christ who is, I'm paraphrasing this verse, Jesus Christ who is, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, washed us from our sins in his own blood, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ is the only king who can bring salvation to our souls and rule in the hearts of mankind. Finally, of course, Christ is born there, as we read in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And it came to pass, in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Saul went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, the city of Nazareth, the city of Nazareth was 70 miles north of Jerusalem. He traveled 75 miles to get down to Bethlehem 
to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David. It was no accident, friends. It's exactly what Micah had prophesied. Christ is born there. It's interesting when we see the, the wise men as they're traveling, they're following the star, and they come to Jerusalem, and they get noised about that they're looking for a king. Well, of course, King Herod becomes alarmed. What do you mean there's another king? Um, some of you are familiar with honeybees. Anybody? Honeybees? I used to keep hives when I was a kid. Honey hive, honeybee hives. And uh, one of the things that the, the honeybees will do, they will actually create a, another queen bee. You have to go through in the, early in the summer, you have to go through your hive maybe once or twice and actually pick them out, each bar of comb out, and you have, to, you have a special tool, and you go along, and any raised area that is larger than other areas is a queen, potential queen bee. And you have to go scrape them off. If you do not do that, the, the, the hive will swarm. And suddenly, they choose sides, basically. Some of the hive honeybees will go with one queen, and some of the bees will go with another queen. And suddenly, you have no bees at all. Because they'll swarm and they'll, they'll split up. Well, this is basically what Herod, when he heard the word, there's another king, you're looking for another king, he's thinking, hey, somebody's rebelling here. And so uh, uh, they said, they were talking about the Christ, the anointed one. And uh, he, he's not heard about this before, apparently. And so he sends for the scribes and the priests. And they go to Matthew chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, and they say, tell, tell him, uh, and the wise men, well, he's supposed to be born at Bethlehem. And, and I mean, you've got to think through this. They know, this was, this was a well-known fact, that the coming king, Christ, was going to be born at a specific place, and so they told Herod and the wise men, well, it's Bethlehem. Well, Herod then goes to the wise men and said, well, you know what? Uh, you go ahead and look, but when you come back, come back and see me. Well, of course, we know they didn't come back, but the angel of the Lord told them not to come back. But they, they, this is a well-known fact. So the angels, the angels also told the shepherds in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 15. He said, he's, there's a, the you'll find in Bethlehem, a child wa- uh, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Of course, it was the Christ child. Micah had prophesied 700 years before that. So Christ was born in the city of David, Bethlehem, because God, in his marvelous plan... Galatians 4.4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. It just so happened they were registering and taking a census. It just so happened that Mary was expecting. It just so happened that census was taking place at the time at which she was expecting. It just so happened when they got to Bethlehem, she had the baby. It just so happened that it was the place that Micah had prophesied in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Christ was born there. It just so happened. Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It just so happened. Folks, this was not an accident. This is exactly the way God planned it. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist was the forerunner, the messenger that came before Christ. 
And he was actually a, a uh, uh, would work out to be like a second cousin of, of Christ. And uh, he was with his disciples. Christ had already been born. He's about 30, 33 years old, 32 years old at this time. When, when John the Baptist saw him, he was walking with his disciples, and he looked and pointed and said, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And his disciples must have gone like, huh? What are you talking about? And it said a couple days later, he's walking with his disciples, and then he sees Jesus again, and he said, there's the Lamb of God. Two of his disciples left John the Baptist and started following Christ. Listen, Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He's the only one. Born in the city of David, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. I am the bread of life. I am the vine, and you are the branches. A lady by the name of Esther Hill wrote this poem called Bethlehem. The wandering stars of Christmas Eve, the angels sang to them of a king of glory who should come that night to Bethlehem. The stars shone east, the stars shone west, and north and south they shone. Yet they saw no king come riding by, they saw no stately throne. But when the morning hours were young, they stood aside to light the way of a happy little babe to Bethlehem that night. And one star, brightest of them all, stood watchful guard above a manger warmed by the cattle's breath and a wondrous mother love. Twas peace on earth, goodwill to men, the angels sang on high, while sweet young Mary hushed her heart to hear her firstborn's cry. Oh, saw you him, the angels sang, and the tired stars answered them, not we, but a little child was born this night in Bethlehem. Exactly as Micah had prophesied. A place, this place, is Bethlehem. Rachel died there. Ruth was redeemed there. David was anointed there. And Christ was born there. Let's pray. Father, we pray even as we come and close our service, Lord, there may be individuals here that do not know Christ as their Savior. And we pray even now that you bring conviction, you direct them, their thinking. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you are here this morning and you would like someone to show you from the Word of God how to be saved, how to know Christ, to let him become your kinsman redeemer. Is there anyone like that? Father, we pray now as we go forth and as we think of this season, oh God, help us to be bold for you. Help us to be a lighthouse. Help us to have influence as Ruth and Naomi had, even in the days of judgment and and days of immorality and days of idolatry. Lord, I pray that we will come and worship you and we'll seek to live in obedience to your scriptures. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.